We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to Salt Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley, your co-host this evening, Joe Quinn. Hi there. And we're joined tonight by Jason Martin. Hello. And Laura. Hi. Laura Nijacic. Laura Nijacic. Okay, well, just to be formal. He well, assumes everybody knows who I am, but I don't know. think that that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, the topic of today's show is the wetical virus and collective psychosis. We're interviewing a very special guest, Paul Levy. Um, Paul is an author of a couple of books that we're going to be discussing today. He graduated with degrees in art and economics and has had a lifelong interest in the work of Carl Jung. As a result of a personal trauma in 1981, he began a process of spiritual awakening that led him on a shamanic descent and a quest to understand the fundamental nature of reality. Paul is the author of two books, The Madness of George Bush, a reflection of our collective psychosis, as well as dispelling wetiko, breaking the curse of evil. You'll also find more of his work on his website, realitysandwich.com. Now, in his books, Paul explains that we disown our innermost darkest thoughts and feelings and project them outwards onto others and the world, a process he compares to the Native American Indian concept of wetiko, more on that in a minute. To give you an idea of where, he's, uh, where we're going to go in today's show, I'm going to quote something Paul's written. There is a contagious psychospiritual disease of the soul, a parasite of the mind, that is currently being acted out en masse on the world stage via a collective psychosis of titanic proportions. This mind virus covertly operates through the unconscious blind spots in the human psyche, rendering people oblivious to their own madness and compelling them to act against their own best interests. So, a very warm welcome to Paul Levy. Hi, Paul. Hi, yeah, I'm just so happy to be here, so I really appreciate your guys' you know, invite. So thank you. Can, can, can I jump off right off of something that uh, Neil just read, you know, where you're talking about this collective psychosis of titanic proportions? Would you uh, say that it's it's kind of um, uh, really getting bad out there right now, that we're really projecting our shadow self onto Russia and and creating a situation that is just absolutely volatile? I mean, it's, it's like a powder keg just waiting to go off over there. Yeah, um, I would agree that the, the collective psychosis, it just seems like it's getting... Just, you know, as time unfolds, it just gets more and more intense. And from the dreaming point of view, and what I mean when I say that is, you know, you can contemplate what's happening in the world as if it's a dream. Um, like, you know, at night when we have a dream, we can contemplate it and understand, well, you know, it in a symbolic way. When darkness more and more manifests and evil really becomes, you know, just a more and more apparent, 
from the dreaming point of view, that's an expression that, that there's light that's nearby because, you know, you can't have a shadow without a light. That's the projector of the shadow. So things seem really, really bad and increasingly bad, you know, as time unfolds. And yet, you know, from from this other point of view, it's an expression that some deeper light is kind of coming out and making all the shadows that typically hide in the corners or hide underground become able to be seen, you know. So we are in the mm-hmm. middle of, of, a, of a collective psychosis of titanic proportions. And part of of the madness is that very few people are even talking about it. And then this, you know, as as if it's like this this normal situation, like the fact that we're in continual war and we're killing each other, and there are just like school shootings seemingly every week. That's just like this normal thing that people have accepted is just, you know, part of what you know. That's just what we do. And that itself, that meme, that thought form itself is crazy. And one of the other aspects of the psychosis is that it's clear that what's playing out in the world is is this evil energy. And I'm not just talking personal evil, but archetypal evil. And, you know, in so many many areas of discourse, um, you can't even mention the word evil. It's a taboo word. And, you know, people who are identified with being spiritual practitioners, oh, I don't want to invest my psychic attention, my energy into contemplating, you know, something like evil. Uh, but what they don't realize is that by, by, by having that avoidance, they're unwittingly feeding it. So there are many, many ways that the collective psychosis plays out. And the indigenous people had the word, um, you know, the Watiko virus, um, which is like this, this mind virus, because it operates through the unconscious and through the parts of us that, that have this blind spot. And um, so it really connotes the spirit of evil in, in indigenous culture. Um, and so what I've tried to do with my book is I've tried to translate what they're pointing at, because they're pointing at something with reference to this evil spirit that operates through the way we actually project via our unconscious onto the, the waking inkblot and then actually create experience for ourselves in a way where we don't have the understanding that we're actually just reacting to our own mind. So it becomes like a feedback loop where we just play out our unconscious and because we're doing it without awareness, it's always in this destructive way. And so that's what my whole work is trying to shed light on um, is, the, is that particular, you know, sort of energetic signature that we're all a part of, that we all act out. Um, and the thing which is interesting, if I can just say a bit more about it, because it's, it's so interesting, is that so the thing about the Watiko virus is that it sources inside of us inside of our psyche, and yet it collapses. There's like, you know, this seeming um, sort of like edge between the inner and the outer world, but the Watiko virus collapses that boundary between the inner and the outer in such a way that it seemingly extends itself into the outer world, seemingly configuring events in the outer world so as to express our inner situation. And so what I just described were what's happening in the outer greater body politic is actually a reflection of what's happening inside of our psyche 
that also is, is you know, this way of describing when you have a dream. Because what is a dream? But it's just a reflection of the mind that's actually the dreamer. And so yeah, the yeah. point... Uh-huh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just so going to say... say. <laughs> okay, so I was just going to say the, the thing about Watiko, so it is the source of the greatest evil that we're playing out, both on the individual dimension where we actually act self-destructively and act out, you know, an addiction or, you know, a- any sort of behavior just in our own self, but it's also the root of the evil, you know, interpersonally and also collectively what's playing out in the greater body politic, but encoded in Watiko in the evil, it's actually helping us to wake up. It's actually helping us to realize the dreamlike nature. So it's like encoded in the evil is this, this, this blessing, this gift. And, but how it manifests, it's a very quantum situation in that both states are superposed together. You know, just like light is it a wave or a particle, well, it depends how do you observe it. The same thing with Watiko. Is it going to destroy us? Or is it going to help us to wake up? Well, it depends on if we have the recognition of what it's actually um, reflecting back to us. Okay, I have two quick things I want to say. First of all, I really appreciate you saying that this is a blessing because for us, uh, our our own uh, research, our discovery of and research into the problem of psychopathy and you know the nature of uh, of evil in that respect was a real blessing. I mean, it was just a tremendous. I mean. In the beginning, mm-hmm. yes, we suffered, but, you know, the thing was, was we learned so much. And what we learned was, you know, what is out there, what, you know, how it can get to us through our own gaps in consciousness, our own gaps mm-hmm. in, in awareness. And, uh, and and by, you know, failing to understand, you know, what our own makeup is like. So it was, it was uh, and beginning also to, you know, to work on ourselves so that those those things weren't manifested in us either. <coughs> So that that's the first thing, but the second thing is is that uh, what you're saying reminds me kind of of Clarissa Pinkola Estes' book uh, Women Who Run with the Wolves, where she talks about mm-hmm. the dark man dream, and the dark man dream. You know, you have that, and it's kind of like a warning that you're in danger because your awareness is uh, is not up to par. You're um, you're sleeping with the enemy, so to say, and that enemy can be your own behavior, it can be your own attitude, it can be your own refusal to look at what you do, how you participate in the perpetuation of evil by not, um, uh, you know, pointing it out, not not naming it, and not uh, doing whatever you can to alleviate or ameliorate it. So, uh, in a certain sense, having a, what we're having is just like a, a grand scale dark man dream, only instead of it being on the inside, now it's on the outside. Yeah, and, and if I could say one thing about about what you just said, Laura, because you're so right on, like the sleeping with the enemy, basically another way of saying that is you're in bed with the enemy, and being in bed with the enemy is to be complicit. And that's where we begin to sort of disengage from unwittingly being agents of this evil is when we have the realization of our own complicity in it. And complicity, I think, is is a really big thing because it's it's like... Um, I just read uh, Gustave Le Bon's book, The Crowd, and I highly recommend it. It's uh, 129 pages. You'll love it. And he talks about uh, this sort of thing, about the, uh, the, subcon- the subconscious ruling a crowd or a group. And, it, and in a way, it relates to um, What's-Her-Face and her, 
her idea of limbic resonance. Who is it? Martha Stout. Martha Stout. Yeah, Martha Stout and her limbic resonance, how people can be terrified and turned into, you know, like an animalistic crowd behavior. But um, in any event, uh, this whole thing is like we as a people are not looking at how complicit we are in allowing things to happen, and we're not aware that we have, we really do have the rulers we deserve. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true, and the thing about this being a collective psychosis is that, you know, when I go into this in my book, because um, when you inquire into what is the nature of this Watiko, of this Watiko virus, and you realize, well, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in an objective, independent way, separate from our own mind. And one other, yeah. one implication of that is that we're all dreaming it up together. So what's happening on the world stage, we are all co-dreaming it together. It's a reflection of something in us that's unconscious. And when you begin to see that, you see, the thing about Watiko, because there are all these ways I can describe it, it's a form of, of the psychic, um, of like, being blind. It's like this blindness that actually believes that it's sighted. And not only does it believe that it's sighted, but arrogantly it believes it's more sighted than you or anyone else. And and so what happens is that we, intrinsic to our nature, we have this genius for creating reality. We create mm-hmm. our experience by moment. But the Watiko virus, in a sense, it hooks into that genius that we all have, and it turns it against ourselves. So we actually unwittingly create reality in a way that isn't serving us, and and then we react to it as if we have nothing to do with invoking it, as if it's objective and separate. And then then we just get caught in this infinitely self-perpetuating feedback loop where we react to our own projections, and that's a way of describing what Watiko is, you know? There's another there's another comparison. Uh-huh. Um, what they call uh, poltergeist phenomena. Uh, poltergeist mm-hmm. phenomena has been studied fairly extensively, and in every case, it's a woman or an adolescent with you know suppressed or turbulent emotional energies that they're not not allowed to express. They're not allowed to uh, look at them. They're not allowed to acknowledge them, and then things begin to happen around them. You know, uh, things move, fly through the air, fires start, uh, you know, water runs, all kinds of strange things happen. And they act as though it has nothing to do with them. And yet, in every single case that I've ever studied, it uh, turns out that there is somebody who has some kind of uh, deep psychological repression and that this energy is being utilized or it's being uh, expressed outside of them because they cannot express it inside. And so on a very grand scale, this is what we're doing. Yeah, no, totally. And that's why, you know, what you're describing, you know, what I was saying before about Watiko, it's in, you know, its sources inside of the psyche, but yet all of a sudden it expre- it's able to synchronistically, in a sense, um, dissolve the boundary between the inner and the outer and seemingly configure events in the world so as to express itself through the medium of the outside world and it's actually expressing an inner situation. And what that points at, in physics they talk about, you know, that what's really important is the, the field, the, the non-local field. And, you know, the fact that it's not constrained by third dimensional space and time. And so when there's an energy that we're not really engaging with, what happens? It then takes us over through our blind spot. You see, the thing about Watiko, it's this 
this archetypal energy, it's transpersonal. It's greater than just the human ego. So it actually, the way it operates is that it will literally possess us, and we unwittingly become the instrument for it to incarnate itself. And then we play it out. We embody it in the world. And um, so one of the ways to begin to see it, you see, how I first began to see it was in my family. And I began to realize, oh, my God, the family system, the field, was actually playing out something like this shadow element. And the more I began to point at the shadowy element, the more different parts of the family system got enlisted into being its agents. And I couldn't believe it was very sci-fi, but I was, all, I, I was beginning to have the realization, oh, my God, there's a deeper non-local field that's informing what's playing out in our world. So that's one of the first steps of being able to see this higher dimensional disease. You know, Watiko. Yeah, we yeah we call it kind of the cryptogeographic being because it it is amazing the way it can erupt here and there and the I mean the minute you start seeing it it's like you know the whole system acts to try to suppress you or to or to exactly, you know, re-blind exactly. you. It'll it's protect just the amazing. user. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Yeah. That that's so that's so psychedelic. When I began to realize that. And it's, it's almost like built into the field when the darkness manifests and somebody sees it and tries to shed light on it, they become seen as the demon or they become seen as the bad guy or the field will conspire to shut them down or something like that. You know, so you have to factor yeah. that into your equation to how do, how do you respond. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy thing. Did you see the movie uh, Fast Runner? No, I, I haven't. Well, it's it's a it's a movie about um, I, I guess you call them uh, Native uh, North Inuit. Americans Inuit, Inuit. You know, it's uh, it's it's an astonishing movie, and but it's basically it's about this very thing. It's a, vi- a very small tribe, and the the virus gets introduced into the small tribe, and it shows how it you know spreads and and almost destroys. Uh, the lives of, of the entire tribe, and then and then it shows how they deal with it. It's a fascinating, fascinating movie. Uh, if if you like lo- scenery that is all white, I mean, two hours of nothing but white. <laughs> right, right. Okay, but cool. You know, Matthew, that this brings up, if I could just say the thing, you see, because what I'm trying to do is create this map so people can actually have the recognition of this evil that I'm pointing at because, you see, it can't, this Watiko, you know, and that's just one word. There, Every tradition has different words for it. It's pointing at the same thing. But the thing about this evil energy is that it can't stand to be seen because when right. you see it, you take away its power. And not only do you take away its power, but you simultaneously empower yourself. So the thing, if I can just describe one of its qualities, is that it's this shape-shifting bug. And what it'll do it, it moment by moment shapeshifts and it'll assume your form. In other words, it'll, it's actually like you'll have a thought, but it's actually not even your thought, but it'll appear as if you're thinking something or you have a belief or you have a perception. And if you're not aware that, oh, wow, this isn't actually how I feel or what I'm thinking, you, you know, if, you are, if you're not aware of that, you're going to identify with that thought and you're going to just absorb into it and take it on and then what's happened is that the Watiko, um, you know, that energy has, in a sense, put you on. And putting you on has a double meaning of putting you on like a suit of clothes, and also putting you on means to fool you. So it's assumed your form, 
The next thing you know, you've identified with it. The next thing you know that you don't know is that you're taken over by it, and you're unwittingly an instrument. You're a secret agent, and your secret is even secret to yourself because you now are a conduit for this higher dimensional bug to play itself out in our world. And that's Absolutely. one of the ways it works. It's, it's scary. And, that, and you just described what this uh, Liban guy describes, how people begin to act when they get this infection in, in crowd behavior. I mean, it's just, it's really astonishing. Can yeah, you no, some, I'm going to get uh, that book. I actually wrote down that I, I need to get the crowd just because I'm not familiar with that. It's, it's available for free online, actually, if you just search Google for it. Yeah, it's, not oh, very long. it's an old book. Yes. Yeah, but it's boy. It, it I mean, and it, forgive him for some of his archaic ideas, such as things like you know, women don't have the capacity to think, you know, like men do. But you know, right, just right. Ignore just that ignore because that. It was, right. Consider the time he was writing. Yeah. And and, right. and just read the rest. But uh, yeah, this is that was the Victorian era. What do you call? Yeah, the Victorian. Right. No, I mean, think about the thing about like you know, the Watiko is that it's 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 traveled multi generation through multi generations throughout time, and it's manifested in all cultures. Oh yeah. So can you give us some practical, uh, real life examples? You know, like describe a a situation you're familiar with and and some of the dynamic of how it how it would appear just in a in a kind of a practical way because you know we all tend to get you know symbolic in our language and 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 I'm the I'm yeah. the practical mystic sure well how about you know this might be a good place for me to just even create context for how I discover it in my own life this this yeah yeah know, right about because so I'm an only child and and it wound up I didn't realize this at the time, but it wound up that my father was really, really sick and that he, he was a psychopath. He was he was a criminal, but he wasn't, it, it, you know, there was a secret, a family secret. Um, I mean, and I could, you know, I, I could go into telling his stories. I'm not going to do that. It's, it's kind of horrifying. But what, what happened on the surface, he seemed to be a normal, good person and all that. But as a sensitive kid, like we all are, I was sensing there was this real darkness that was coming through him. And, um, and particularly because here I was, the only child who was really you know, very bright and good at school and accomplished and a happy kid. And he was so identified unconsciously with me to the point where when I began to separate, um, you know, it would just throw him into absolute murderous demonic rages, having heart attacks, telling me I was killing him. The, the whole, I mean, just over-the-top stuff. To the point where I got sick, I got after the worst of the episodes, I got a fever the very next day for a year, you know, and they couldn't find anything physically that was the matter. And then at the end of that year, that entity that had taken over my father, you know, that raging, blaming, hateful energy was now all of a sudden, much to my horror, it was living inside of my psyche. And it was getting consolated at any impulse I had towards just being myself. So what I'm describing is just I was actually traumatized and I was like recreating the external trauma, but now it was happening in, in my mind. So to answer your question, I was trying to, to express as best as I could to my mother, to the, my friends, to the relatives, and then I began going to therapists, and then I began, then I had a whole awakening that got me hospitalized and thrown in mental hospitals, and I was trying to describe on the one hand, that I was having this spiritual awakening and I was realizing, wow, we're all co-dreaming and this is a dream and we can help each other to wake up. And not only was that not understood, but then 
um, everybody protected my father, you know, including my mother, the relatives, my friends, his friends, the psychiatrist. And um, so, to, you know, to answer your question about, well, how does it manifest, give us a practical example. Here, I was like, actually, as I was awakening to who, you know, to just my own nature, I was beginning to realize, oh, my God, this this dynamic that I just was describing just in a little bit, this is what's playing out in the world. And that if somebody sees it but isn't, because I, I, was I was in my mid-20s, I had to develop the skillfulness to really articulate what I was seeing in a way that wasn't getting me in trouble. Because as I was more and more trying to like to like point at the shadow and the evil and the darkness that was playing out and that people were colluding in it through their unconscious as i was doing that the more and more i was being seen as the one who was crazy so what i'm describing i imagine you know maybe some of our your listeners might be able to relate to because i'm not the only one who's had experiences like this we all kind of do and so part of it is you create a container in yourself and also with other people to the point where you develop a way of, of, of just being, being in communication and having a relationship. It's almost like creating this, like, you know, um, a way of speaking where you have, you're invoking like this meta-awareness. But it's kind of, that's a whole deeper discussion. But I'm just curious if this is at all getting through what I'm trying to say, because it almost killed me. It almost, you know, I was between 81 and 82. I was thrown in mental hospitals maybe four or five times. I was always guaranteed by the doctors that I had a chemical imbalance, that I was mentally ill, that I would need to be on medication for the rest of my life. And here, you know, I haven't been on medication for like 35 years or something like that. And, um, you know, with no episodes or anything like that. So I quickly extricated myself from that situation and just very thankfully met my teachers and continued my awakening and then wrote my, my books. Um, but I think so many people in who are actually institutionalized in psychiatric hospitals are actually having some form of shamanic initiation or spiritual awakening. But, you know, in, in from the consensus reality point of view, they're not seen in that way, and they're just pathologized and medicated, and, and it's really tragic, you know, what can happen. I think uh, maybe another way to describe it would be, say, in, in a marriage, say uh, a woman or a man, and it depends on, you know, it could be either way, uh, and one partner puts unreasonable expectations on the other, and they're not really spoken, but they're 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 there. They're like the atmosphere, like the the field, as you describe it. And then the other partner can't come up to those expectations, and then it, then is condemned by looks or uh, subtle degradation or uh, even you know angry reactions and so forth. And then that person who is having this done to them, it's kind of like gaslighting. What I'm trying to say is it's like gaslighting, and then that person becomes crazier and crazier and crazier, just like the woman in the movie Gaslight. Uh, and then they end up, as you say, getting locked up in a mental institution because they know something is going on, something's being done to them, but it's, it's done in such a way that other people think that just normal things are going on and that they're the one who's going crazy. Right. No, that's totally true. You know, that's totally true. And then, you know, what that brings up for me, the psychological sort of like 
um, the underlying process that underlies, you know, this whole, um, you know, what the indigenous people call, like, the Watiko virus is like projecting of the shadow. And one way of really understanding that, so say we, we disassociate from the darker part of ourselves. And so then what do we do? We, you know, it gets, gets thrown outside of us. We, we you know, it gets, it gets projected outside. But then, you see, what I point out in my work is that this reality is very much like a dream. So when we, you now think about it, if you're in a dream and if you then disconnect from an energy in, in yourself in the dream, it gets projected out into the dream. And what is the dream but just an actual reflection of your own mind? So, you know, into the dream will immediately come, you know, somebody who is carrying and embodying that particular split-off shadow that you've just projected out. And if you think about it, all of a sudden, oh, now you have evidence that the shadow really is out there because it's, it's seemingly, you know, outside of yourself. So that entrenches you even more in your point of view that the shadow is outside of yourself. So then you now have a hook you know, and you have more proof to, to to actually see the shadow outside of yourself. And the more you see it, you know, outside of yourself, the more evidence the dream will supply to prove your point of view is correct in an infinitely, you know, self-creating feedback loop. And what, of course, happens is that then you try to destroy, you know, and I'm talking in the ultimate sense, that person who's carrying that darkness because that's a reflection of your inner process of wanting to destroy your own darkness. So your inner process is actually playing out in the outer world. And by doing that, you've actually become possessed by the very darkness you're trying to destroy. And that plays out on the world stage. It also plays out in marriages or, you know, in any relationship where we're not like, you know, owning our own shadow. And yeah, so you're totally right that, um, you know, and that's the psychological dynamic that underlies um you know what what we're talking about there's a a guy that have you you know gabor mate right oh yes totally okay so he's got a book called when the body says no and he talks about the fact that uh you know people i mean it's it's along the very same line where you don't acknowledge that shadow inside yourself. You can't acknowledge your anger. You can't acknowledge, you know, your rejection of something because we're all brought up to be, you know, these perfect little children who are never angry and, and you always smile even though you don't like something and and you accept this, you accept that, even though you really reject it. You're told, you know, don't say that, that's not nice. And, oh, no, you, you can't dislike so-and-so because it's really a nice person. And, of course, you know, you as a kid may know that he's really a pervert. Uh, but you're not allowed to say, you're not allowed to act in certain ways. And most of all, you can't be angry at your parents for anything, you know, even the, even innocent uh, things. So you, you suppress this. And then, of course, it, as you say, it, it ends up outside. But he talks about how people end up with uh, terrible diseases, just as you were describing uh, getting sick because you were suppressing you know, I mean, mm-hmm. if, if your parent if your parent is acting a certain way and you don't feel like you can express your anger toward them, then you express it toward yourself, or you get a disease, or you get sick in some way, and then you begin acting in certain ways as you just described. And it uh, so I think that maybe the, this this thing that you're talking about, this shadow self that people do not uh, acknowledge, and it comes, you know, it's going to bring us around here in a, in a second to, to the global thing is they don't acknowledge they have negative emotions, that they have anger, that they, um, 
you know, that they have needs that uh, aren't being met. They are unable to ask for those needs to be met. Uh, they, they don't feel like they're worth uh, having their needs met. They're, um, they feel that if they get angry at their partner or their parents that they'll be abandoned. They have the fear of abandonment. So, so they end up, uh, you know, completely suppressing everything. And, and Gabor Mate says that if you learn how to appropriately feel, and it's not, you know, it's, it's more than anything, it's feeling it. You know, feeling it, understand it, know that it's okay to be angry. It's okay to express anger if you express it appropriately. And you don't have to project, you know, you don't have to go along and say, oh, I'm perfect, I never feel angry, I'm holier than thou, I, uh, you know, I'm just the cat's meow, and it's other people who are doing all those things because I am, uh, you know, holier than the Pope. And so what, what ends up happening is people end up getting sick. And that's kind of in a way with the global situation because for example Americans you know the exceptionalism you know we are perfect we are all about democracy we're all about uh, you know everything that is about America is good and pure and perfect and so on and so forth and anybody else and everybody else is somehow you know evil because we're not allowed to say those things yeah what do you well, I was going to say um, I've been quiet so far because I've been I've been really trying to listen hard because obviously the the language of Mr. Levy is is not quite the same as mine so I'm trying to kind of get my head around it because I think uh, I think you're saying something very important about this um, I think that that actually as I sit here and think about it there is something really true about this idea that part of the problem as as Laura was saying is people's inability to accept and cope with their own thing, their own problems, and that exceptionalism and projecting it out into the world is kind of, in a certain sense, at the core of humanity's problems. Because what prevents us from coming together is kind of a sense of righteousness and perfection in ourselves, which is totally delusional. We completely reject any part of ourselves that is that is not, you know, holy or good, and we prevent ourselves from ever um, coming together as a whole kind of, uh, a whole race, the whole human race kind of coming together, because we're always sitting there and looking at people and saying, oh, but they do this, or oh, but they do that, instead of realizing that, you know, we do bad stuff too. I mean, Americans, they do bad stuff all the time. You know, America's been doing bad stuff. I mean, they completely slaughtered the Native Americans, stole all their land. And, you know, we were watching this movie the other night about the help. And it wasn't even 50 years ago or 60 years ago that, I mean, African Americans were still basically slaves in the U.S. And now here we are sitting there acting like we're a democracy and talking about what's going on in Russia and, oh, they do this and, oh, they do that. It's like, you know, we still don't have room to talk there. So... Yeah, no, totally. And what you're saying, too, is like, you see, what I, what I talk about in, in my book is that we all at any moment can potentially fall prey to this Watiko. You know, um, yeah, if somebody becomes fully and utterly enlightened, I'm, I don't even know what that means, you know, then they're, they're immune. But, Me either. You know, right, but the, the point being that it's really important to develop, like, the self-reflective ability and the humbleness of realizing, I mean, who among us hasn't unwittingly, with the best of intentions, you know, unconsciously acted out their unconscious in a way 
that's been hurtful to themselves or to others. I mean, we all have. Mm-hmm. And when you have that understanding, you, all of a sudden that cuts through. You see the point of view of saying, oh, they have what to go and we don't. That perspective is itself an expression that, that you're under the spell of what because it feeds off of polarization and separation. Yeah. So the let, point let is, is that we're without all, sin cast the first stone. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We all we all have a shadow, you know, and like I was saying, that whole dynamic of projecting the shadow, that's the psychological dynamic that's underlying, you know, this whole process. So the idea of, of having, you know, the, just the, the real, like, deep understanding that, yeah, I too, any of us, we all have potentiality to fall asleep and to unwittingly act out our darker impulses, even, you know, with inc- we, have a tendon- we have an incredible, like, ability to, to self-deceive. And, um, you know, and, and to realize that it's, it's a mortifying realization to catch yourself with your hand in the cookie jar of your own unconscious. But when you see that, it develops like this, this humbleness. And that, you see, then that opens up to that deeper place of the compassion where you have the realization that ultimately we're all interconnected and interdependent. And that, that compassion, that's really, that's like the, this medicine for dissolving the Watiko virus. Well, yeah, I've kind of noticed that the kind of the foundational aspect of hypocrisy, at least political hypocrisy, is a total lack of humility and a, realize, a realization that, that, you know, we made mistakes in the past, and so we need to be a little bit more, you know, diplomatic and understanding about things. This whole situation that's going on with America and 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 Russia, it's it's it takes on the kind of the blaming the victim type of situation, basically, where they're sort of saying, you know, they, uh, well, basically in the context of Russia being that Russia was a victim of the United States and the capitalism in the early 90s and what they did to it. And now Russia's coming back and saying, hold on, you can't do this anymore. And now they're saying, but look how terrible they are. And, uh, well, hmm. sorry, that's about the end of that thought. Um uh-huh. Paul, Paul, I was uh, I was just thinking there. In, in your book, you like you've already you've already mentioned you make a reference to this idea of projection, projecting own darkness out there, and that this you know for me that uh, that kind of darkness isn't really you know some people might think it's synonymous with original sin and stuff, but as far as I understand it, that kind of a darkness is essentially just uh, hang-ups and issues, personal issues and programs, let's say that uh, a lot of them that come from childhood uh, where we're taught or forced in some way by our parents to disown uh, a part of ourselves and to reject it and to maybe even hate it because of this kind of early childhood programming. And then later, we, as you were saying, we project it onto others and hate it and, hate it and condemn it in others. Um, mm-hmm. And you describe this as this Wetiko virus, essentially. But then in other parts of your books, you, you mention... You refer to Don Juan, uh, Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan character, and mm-hmm. the idea of, of this predator, uh, almost, and you also, you know, kind of go to the point of suggesting that it's almost an external, uh, almost independent kind of conscious entity. And I'm wondering if there are two separate aspects of this, with Hiko, if, they're, if they're quite separate or if there's some kind of a, an interplay between them. Right. No, I appreciate that. And that's a great question because, you know, I, I try to go into that in the book because if if we just think, for example, that, oh, what the Watiko virus, this 
predator energy, it's just our projection, it's just our imagination, then by holding that viewpoint, we've fallen under its thrall. That's what it wants us to think, that it's not real. But then, if we think it's real, then guess what? We've fallen under its thrall too, because then we've invested it with reality that's unwarranted. You see, so it's this real, in a sense, like conundrum, in the sense that on the one hand, it's not just a projection of the mind, it's not, and on the other hand, it's not like objective, separate from us, like having an independent existence. It exists in this realm that's between the two, in the imaginal realm. So it's the sort of thing where it has no reality, ultimately speaking, at all, and yet it can destroy our species. So how do you hold hmm. that, you know? And the point is, is that it's, you know, similar like in a dream. When you're in a dream at night and there's this evil, monstrous, vampiric figure, yeah, you have to deal with that in the relative dimension of the dream. You have to come to terms with that or that's going to kill you. But yet, ultimately, you can actually have the recognition that that's just your own energy, that that's just your own incredible power that you're disassociated from that's getting, like, you know, thrown outside of yourself and abracadabra embodied in a seemingly other form. And if you don't have the recognition that you're dreaming, you know, then you have to deal with it in a certain way. But once you recognize the nature of your situation in that dream, that figure is recognized to be just your own energy. And, you know, in, in any of the, mm. you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, like, you know, that's, I do practice in, in that lineage, they'll talk about that's when you, that's when you wake up. And so, so I'm trying to give a sense of the incredible, like, slippery slope of trying to, you know, to hold any of the, the opposite viewpoints of saying, oh, it's objectively real, it's not objectively real. No, they're both errors. You know, and there's, there's this, this, this sort of bardo realm that we live in that's really important to understand as a way of being able to engage with these energies. This comes back to the example of the poltergeist. They, they can't exist without our energy, but yet, in a certain sense, once that energy has left us, it's very real out there. Mm. Yeah, I, I, sometimes, I, I think sometimes about the, the genesis of this, uh, and virus is a very good uh, you know, term to use or analogy to use, I think, because uh, imagine you had, you know, let's go back to Adam and Eve, or the first human beings or whatever, you know, that were created and they were, uh, you know, first set of parents that had children. If they were just fully normal, healthy, psychologically healthy, normal as humans are meant to be type of thing, uh, people, and they raised children who are perfectly normal, then none of this kind of Watiko virus type stuff, whatever, have entered into the human, um, you know, the human race essentially, because once you start, if you, but if you do start with that, if you, if you somehow are able to inject that into the, into at some point in time, I'm not talking about Adam and Eve here, but at some point in time, if you're able to inject that into uh, a set of a couple of people, like that, say two parents, hypothetically here, two parents who, for whatever reason, maybe like maybe we could be talking about psychopathy here or some kind of deviation or aberration in, in away from normal human psychology, uh, then that would in itself it would be a it would propagate naturally, if you know what I mean, because you so you have two evil parents or even just one evil parent who then raises children to have this uh, this uh, disowned part of themselves who then engage in you know projecting their darkness outwards and causing further 
uh, damage to their children and on down the line and it spreads out. It's, it seems to me almost like the way it could start would be just to have one seed entered or uh, seeded into the human race at some point and it would spread uh, kind of organically and yeah, get no, worse that's and worse totally, and worse over time. That's totally true. And that, that's a, an issue that I contemplate is how did it start? You know, and there are all these theories of, you know, all these extraterrestrials or there was some sort of trauma or whatever, and you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't reach any conclusion. But I, what I point out is that the nature of our situation is that it's getting recreated moment by moment, you know, in this mm-hmm. moment and in this moment, and um, you know, and, and you're, I'm just glad you brought up also the idea that you see once this this Watiko energy gets into, in a sense, the petri dish of the family system whether it's just even in one person's psyche or in one of the parents or in the human family, it tends to propagate. And it propagates mm-hmm. through the unconscious blind spot. And, you know, and that's important to understand with, like, the whole idea of, like, you have a psychopath, and a psychopath can't do much harm when it's just themselves. But when the field actually, when it doesn't recognize their psychopathology, and it'll organize itself in a way to to protect their their you know their whatever their illness their their evil, and it'll collude with the psychopath. And an example, just think about like in World War II with Hitler, where you know here are the here are the Germans, and you know and a whole lot of them were were these good, well-intentioned people who just thought Hitler was a father figure who was going to help them and all this stuff. And and because they didn't they didn't recognize the evil that was coming through him, they actually colluded with him, and he couldn't have done the incredible destruction he did without them through their unconscious supporting him and following him. And that's mm. just a really sort of very simple example of how the thing about evil it's uh, it's really important to understand it from the point of view of not just an individual person. Um, but as it's a field phenomena. And, of course, an individual person could be so taken over, because I talk about this in my book, that a person can be so taken over by evil that they literally become the incarnation of it or the embodiment of it, which the positive aspect of that is that they're actually revealing this archetypal higher-dimensional energy. They're showing what it looks like in a human being. And it's actually information. It's like a gold mine for all of us to actually understand that pathology that exists inside of all of us. There it is. Somebody's embodying it, you know? Hmm. We have a, a question here uh, from a listener called Joel. He, uh, he says, Paul touches on Watiko having to do with addiction and unhealthy obsession of all kinds. Uh, he says it would be interesting to hear more on that and especially how it might co-op creativity and inventiveness. Hmm? Yeah, no, that's a great question because the thing about Watiko, I was saying it's an archetypal energy, a transpersonal energy. It's greater than the human ego, and yet it possesses the human ego. And another word for it, it's this daimonic energy. And, and this, you know, that word, um, daimonic, is an energy that literally takes one over, and then we become possessed by it. Now, etymologically, um, the word daimon means the inner voice or the guiding spirit. And it's related to the, to the you know, um, genie, as in I dream of genie or genius. It also etymologically has to do with finding your calling and hearing a voice and finding what you're here to do. So the point being, 
when we connect with that daimonic energy um, in a conscious way, it becomes our you know, inner voice, this guiding spirit. But if we turn away from it, and and don't take in what it's you know um, telling us or inviting us to do, it consolates in a negative way and becomes a demon. Now encoded in that daimonic energy is the creative spirit. So the point being, almost like as alchemists, if we're able to access that higher dimensional archetypal daimonic transpersonal energy, whatever you call it, watiko or whatever. And if you're able to express it creatively, then you're not going to be so prone to addictions or habitual patterns or self-destructive behavior. But if some, it's it's very much like a shaman. When a shaman gets called, and and um, keep in mind, it's not you know becoming a shaman. It's not something that anybody consciously would ever in their right mind would decide to do. In a way, the spirits call on. And if you don't accept the calling and if you don't say, okay, I'm going to cooperate with this deeper process, then what happens? You get sick and you can become really crazy and you can even die. But all of a sudden, once you subscribe and, and say, okay, I'm going to cooperate with this deeper calling, then all of a sudden you, know, you find what you're here to do. So it's a similar idea that we're all called to express our own soul and our own self in a creative way. And if we really, um, you know, cooperate with that and engage in that, it can heal us. It's like that apocryphal saying, if you don't bring what's within you, you know, how does it go? If, if you bring forth what's within you, what's within you will save you. But if you don't bring forth what's within you, what's within you will, will destroy you. It's that same archetypal idea. Hmm. hmm. Um, and this, this next question from another listener um it kind of relates to a question I had, which was, you know, where do you see things going if they continue on the course that they are? The question was, uh, I wonder about the cycle of catastrophes. And here, I think the this person means kind of cyclical kind of destruction of civilization throughout history and how it relates to the human experience and, Watiko, and the Watiko virus. How basically humanity is perhaps bringing a necessary cleansing on its head to rid itself of this virus yeah that's the question well, right and um you know what's playing out in the world i it's it's horrifying what's happening and you know i think about quantum physics is that you know it, it's indeterminate it's a realm of infinite potentiality what's going to happen and in in the Watiko virus like i say is that encoded in it it's it's a superposition of states of it's the, the deepest poison um, and the greatest evil and toxin and all those things, you know, and it's the greatest blessing. And it's both in potentiality depending how we going, you know, are we going to recognize what it's showing us. And so my hope and what I'm, what I'm dreaming is that more and more of us are actually beginning to wake up to the dreamlike nature of reality, to that we're interconnected, interdependent, um, you know, to that we're beginning to see this Watiko virus, how it operates in our lives, in our relationships, you know, out in the world stage, that we're beginning to actually um, to to see by seeing the dreamlike nature, beginning to wake up and beginning to realize, well, we can connect with each other, and what I call we can conspire to co-inspire, we can activate our um, collective genius 
in a way where we can dream ourselves awake. And that's an evolutionary impulse that we're all invited to participate in. And that's basically what my work is about, is trying to, to switch people onto that. And because we're all artists, we're all creative beings. And I'm actually, as an artist, I'm creating an art happening, and I'm labeling it, oh, we could call it um, um, you know, an awakening, this, this global awakening would be the name of the art happening. And we can all participate, and there, you know, there's no fees or dues. You get, everybody gets full benefits. The point being that we can come together in a way and actually dream ourselves awake. And that's totally within the realm of possibility. And if somebody's just saying to me, oh, you're just a dreamer and you're not in touch with reality, I, I would disagree. I would say, no, this is actually the whole point of what's playing out, you know. Yeah, it, it, it begs a lot of questions. I mean, it's one we've tried to answer a number of times, namely that with things going as they are and people getting, you know, some people awakening from it and finding joy in it, and that's good, but for the most part, it makes people really despondent and afraid and in fear, at least initially. And they come up with the question, well, what is the function of it? Or rather, they don't quite get to that, but we kind of try and point out to them that maybe there is a function, a purpose for it. Now, you've got a lot of people out there who, who've got a hope that things will change, change for the better. Okay, they see the world's going bad, so what, what's on their mind? Revolution. The outer world has manifested the wrong way. I want to change that manifestation. Um, what do you have to say to that? I mean, it, it's something that we kind of we, we started yeah. encouraging other people because, you know, mm. taking to the streets, right? No, I, I have something. That's not in their mind, I, but. Yeah, I have something to say about that because I, I talk about that it's really important um, to become what's called a um, spiritually informed political activist. That if okay. one just becomes a political activist just by itself, so <laughs> many political activists who have the best of intention are just reacting out of their own fear or hatred or anger and unwittingly they're absolutely feeding the Watiko virus in in their reactivity in that way but then I know a lot of spiritual people who are just of the opinion oh if I just sit in my room and meditate and do mantras and feel peace and joy then well the whole world will just reflect that back and that's true in one way and it's not true in another and how it's not true is that we're at the point in our evolution where our inner process is manifesting as the outer world, which is to say that the way to work on our inner process is to be fully engaged in the outer world. So what I'm talking about is to cross-pollinate being a political activist and a spiritual practitioner. That's why I call it a spiritually informed political activist, that either one by itself is incomplete. Cool. I like that. Sipa. Expand on S-I-P-A. that a little bit. I like that. What? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's... that's. Uh, I agree. I fundamentally agree. Yeah. So can you can you give us some examples of how a spiritually informed activist... Political activist. Political yeah, activist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Right. So say, in other words, somebody um, of that persuasion would understand that, okay, I need to engage with the greater body politic, but if I do it in such a way that I'm reacting out of my own fear or hatred or anger or I'm like fighting evil, well, evil feeds off of that. 
and into that, and then you're unwittingly being an agent for Watiko. And so, um, you know, the idea being that you have to have the spiritual awareness um, and see the deeper dream-like nature, because any spiritual tradition is pointing at this as a dream. And when you have that expanded awareness and, and see the dream-like nature of things, and you have, you recognize the interdependence and the interconnection, and you tap into that, the place of the, your heart of compassion, and all of a sudden then you're not going to be reacting in a habitual fear-based way, and you're not going to be fighting against the darkness, which is what the darkness depends on. You're actually seeing the deeper archetypal playing out in the world. And in a way, you can you can discover, oh, yeah, there are ways I can intervene in the dream that actually help. Because what it actually is, what we're dealing with is a spell. It, it's, you know, what the real war is, is on consciousness, you know. And, and as long as we're fighting with guns and tanks and bombs in the outside world, we're part of the problem. And the point is, is that how, when you wake up enough in this collective, um, you know, this waking dream we're having, and you see, oh my God, my fellow, you know, brothers and sisters, we're actually entranced, thinking this is real and separate from us in a way that it's not, which is a reflection of how we're not in touch with who we are, then the way, as a spiritually informed political activist, you, you, what all of a sudden the whole problem changes, and you realize, wow, how can I actually be in the world which is going to help people to snap out of their entrancement and out of their being bewitched in a certain way? It, because the thing about Watiko, it can't take away our power from us, but it tricks us into giving it away ourselves. Okay, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. what I'm point out in the book is that this is the dimension where we can actually intervene in the dreaming. That's what I call it, intervening in the dreaming, where you actually can change things, where you could actually change the world. And, you know, it's a very subtle thing, but it's super profound. And, um, yeah, so anyway, so that's just a little bit. Well, there's a fundamental well, truth there, uh, because the way things have been set up now as it seems like the, the powers that be, quote-unquote, are kind of trying to goad people into fighting on their terms, you know, try to fight with tanks and bombs and Molotov cocktails, and they seem to have a pretty good answer for that. Um, they have the, they're ready. They want people to start a revolution because they have bigger solution. guns. Mm-hmm. They've got bigger yeah. guns, and they know that they want you to fight the fight on their terms. Yeah. They're trying to control the situation, to manage it, to make sure that you understand, that you think that there are only two options. Mm-hmm. Lay down and take it, or pick up a gun and shoot at me. Right. And uh, they've, got, they've got both of those situations covered. As long as they control the argument, they control the, the perception of the problem. The debate, yeah. They bait you into one or two or three different solutions that they know that they can withstand. It's like John Lennon said... Uh, when when they get you angry or violent, yeah. uh, then they know how to deal with you. Uh, and, that's and, where they want you. Yeah. And, and Martin Luther King was really kind of big on that. That was his whole thing about nonviolence, mm-hmm. uh, was that it's just not going to work. You know, mm-hmm. from Even if you win, it won't work. If you win, it's actually worse, mm-hmm. as he said, because you have to remember that if you win, you the have violence. to go back to living with these people, and you're going to have to maintain your subjugation of them because you subjugated them. And now you're going to have to live with that, and they're going to, they can't wait until mm. they can do it to you, no, yeah. what you did to them. It's no solution. Well, 
Right. The thing, because what you're saying is so important and, and right on, and I just want to point out the one thought form I would like to interject is that what, what we're describing about the, the prevailing power structure and the powers that be and all that, what's playing out in that sphere, that's a reflection of what's actually happening deep inside the collective unconscious of our species, which is to say deep inside of each one of us. You see, and that's when you recognize that, that's when you begin to recognize, oh my God, the outer, what's playing out in the outer is symbolically reflecting back my inner situation. Wait a second, I'm looking in a mirror. That's, this is just like a dream. You see, that's when you begin to recognize the dreamlike nature. And when I, when I refer to the dreamlike nature, you know, if you change, if you're in a dream at night and you change your perspective, what happens? Instantaneously, the dream shapeshifts to reflect back that change in viewpoint. Because what is the dream but your own mind? It's just projected outside of yourself. So all of a sudden, you begin to realize, oh my God, I have this incredible intrinsic power for creating my experience. And in a sense, that's what the powers that be don't want. They don't want us to tap into our infinite power of how we create, how we co-create reality moment by moment, both as individuals and particularly how we co-create with each other. That's their worst nightmare. Yeah, Paul, we have a, we have a call on the line. I'm just going to go ahead and take it here. Sure. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Uh, hi, everybody. Um, this is Shane calling from New York. Hi, Shane. Welcome to the show. You got a question or hi. comment for uh, yeah. Paul? Yeah. Um, yeah, for Paul and, and the crew there. Um, yeah, it's just a, a fascinating discussion. Um, yeah, it seems to relate a lot to um, you know the concepts that um, uh, Andrew Lopchesky put out there with uh, political plurality mm-hmm. and and how um, you know how the mass of you know people can become uh, infected with uh, these you know pathological ideology and. How you know these psychopaths? They really don't have um, much creative capacity, but you know, with um, with human beings themselves, you know, we have that creative part. But when we accept, um, you know, their their twists and turns, and you know, just their their pathology, um, that you know, it kind of acts as an infection in us, and you know, and our creative um, ability kind of gets. Yeah, that that's what causes all the uh, distortion, um, you know, that that we're, that we're seeing around us, and all the all the destruction. You know, they're they're useless pretty much in themselves. But when we kind of uh, you know take on, you know, their thinking, um, that's really what you know propels us into um, just chaos. And yeah, I was, so I was just kind of curious, you know, what um, you know, if Paul was was uh, familiar with phonology uh, and just what his thoughts were on it. Yeah, no, I'm quite familiar with that book. That's one of my favorite books. I, I love that book. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I just have great things. I think that everybody should read that book. And that, you know, I mean, I studied that book really deeply when I wrote my book. And, um, yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I just think the political ponderology book is a, is a really, really important work. Okay. Uh, okay, is that a chain? Yep, yep, thanks. All right. Thank we, you, Shane. Uh, totally. Thanks, Shane. Thanks. Uh, we've got another. I'm just going to go straight to another call here. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. 
Maybe it's a listener. Joshua you know from it? Boulder, Colorado. Hi, Joshua. Yeah, hey, man. How's it going? Hey, how are you? Welcome. Hey, Go ahead. Thanks. You got a comment or question? Um, yeah, I was wondering. It sounds like uh, Paul's done a lot of research, and I was wondering if you ever thought about the psychological implications of uh, compassion and, uh, like, the mechanics behind it, um, how, like, having compassion for other people, how that can set your psychology up in a way that maybe Watiko can't get a foothold. Have you thought about that? Yeah, no, that's totally, I talk about that, and that's a beautiful phrase, that once you cultivate compassion, I mean, I'm a Buddhist practitioner, so that's my thing, once you cultivate compassion, Watiko, it, it can't get a foothold in your psyche, and that's, that's a beautiful way of saying it, you know, because it's, it's almost like when, you know, when the soil is kind of like, you know, is not pure, that's where the Watiko virus can take roots and begin to flourish, and, and, you know, so I, I talk about, you see, the thing about compassion, it's an expression. When you're in a dream, and so I'll just take a step back. In, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they talk about that awakening is the co-joining of two factors. And the two factors are emptiness and compassion. And emptiness is the recognition that whatever the world you're in, in your experiences, that it doesn't have an intrinsic, independent, objective existence. And a way to understand that is imagine being in a dream, in a night dream, and you recognize that you're dreaming. All of a sudden, this world that you were in in the dream, where the moment before you thought was real, when you recognize you're dreaming, you recognize, oh my God, it's just my own energy. It has no independent existence. That's the, that's the emptiness aspect. But they say then that when you recognize the emptiness, the expression of that realization is compassion. That the two always go together if it's a true awakening. And so that energy, so people who ask me, oh, how can I cultivate more, you know, I want to awaken more in the dream, well, one of the major answers is to cultivate compassion, you know, because that creates a soil where anything like Watiko, it just can't take root at all. Right, that's, that's kind of how I've always thought of it. So, yeah, it sounds like you get it. Right? Can all you right. hear me? Yeah. Is that, uh, do you have any questions? Well, hey, okay. All right, that's it. That's Great show, man. All right. Thanks, Thanks Joshua. Joshua. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate the question, Joshua. Thank you. All right. Right on. Uh, calls are taking fast here. I might as well go to the next one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just get them out of the way. Uh, hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi. Uh, this is Bernard calling from Los Angeles. Hi, Bernard. Welcome to the show. Hey. Hello. Thanks, guys. Hi there. Um, I have a question for Paul um, uh-huh. regarding what you um, – addressed before that the Wetiko virus is objective but uh, exists in objective reality and not in an objective reality at the same time or neither both of them and the paradox mm-hmm. and I had a question regarding what you also addressed in the book about the UFO ET phenomenon and mm-hmm. uh, you write here and um, and I quote you uh, Terence McKenna hypothesized that the ET UFO phenomenon might actually be an expression of the psychic fact that we've become so split off from our true self that we can only begin to experience it in the projected form of an alien other. Are the seeming appearances of ET UFOs in the outer world simply an embodied reflection of this inner psychic process as if an archetypal process deep within the human psyche is being dreamed up into materializing itself through our universe in order to show us something about ourselves? End quote. Mm -hmm. So my question is, 
Um, I can totally see that a lot of it is our shadow projected outwards and collectively and personally. But is there also not the possibility that not everything is part of our projected shadow? And when looking deeper into the so-called ETUFO phenomenon, that there might be actually an objective reality of beings controlling and literally feeding off of us, similar like we take uh, use the animal or um, plant kingdom as resources and food. And in short, again, that uh, not everything is right. what's happening collectively is particularly related to shadow projection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate that. That's a great, that's a great question. And, um, you know, and it's not an easy answer because what, what I'm talking about is that, you know, so in, in Buddhism they'll talk about there's the relative level and the absolute level. And you have to honor both. The both, they interpenetrate. And so what I'm, what I'm ultimately pointing at is who we are. And so, you know, when we're not in touch with a part of ourselves, we're going to dream it up in negative or positive form outside in the world. And from, from the dimension of the relative reality, yeah, these beings, clearly they're other, they're alien, they're autonomous, they're not us, and we need to relate to them in that fashion. And what I'm talking about, ultimately speaking, from the ultimate absolute point of view, that there is no other, that it's all us. And when you see that, all of a sudden, you know, the ones, one, one has a relationship to the universe, that, that radically changes because then all of a sudden there is no otherness. There is no, there's no self and other. It's all just self. So that's, you know, talking from the absolute ultimate point of view. And from the relative point of view, there are these alien others who are autonomous and clearly you're over there and I'm here and we're separate and, and, and other. And what I'm talking about is holding both points of view simultaneously. Because if you remember, I said the relative and the absolute interpenetrate each other. You have to honor both, you know. But I, th- I, I think that... Uh-huh. I think that if you uh if you try to activate the absolute point of view uh you know without the proper context I think it may backfire because you know Right I mean, I, if I can say Laura, you, know, you just read my mind you just totally recycled yeah, because I I was just about to say I see this with a lot of you know really well-intentioned spiritual people they just hear about the absolute point of view and they just they they assume that point of view going oh everything's one everything's perfect and meanwhile here like there's incredible evil and self and and, and this destruction playing out in the world and they're just oh it's all perfect it's all one and they're just you know establishing themselves in the absolute point of view and they're like but they're marginalizing the relative that's the big danger right well right, that's yeah, the danger exactly kind of when you I was going to say that's the danger when you when you talk about things in this kind of very meta way of archetypes and, and iconic speech, which is very true. But um, it, it's very easy for people to think that that's the only way of looking at things, and, and they latch onto that. Yeah, they latch yeah, onto oh, that. Yeah, believe because me. Yeah. In a certain sense, it's actually it's a little bit more comforting. It's very comforting to think about you know all is one. You, you know, could even say that that's at the root of, of dis- dissociating from your darker self because right. you, you latch onto that when it's not entirely appropriate right. 
in the context or in the realm that we're in because you know if you you step out of a a 10-story window uh gravity is going to act on you in a in a and gravity is part of you yeah but you're still going to hit the ground (laughs) (laughs) you know all is one but yeah you're still going to hit the ground and pretty soon you're going to be one with the worms (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, and, and and I just want to say too. You see, what you guys are pointing at is it's so. That's why, like a lot of these these spiritual traditions, they would have this 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 wisdom that they would only impart to their like real deep, you know, the people who've gone through initiations, because they would understand that if they were to give these 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 incredible teachings, that oh, it's all a dream and we're all one, to people who didn't understand it, that they would pervert it in a way that wouldn't be helpful. You know, and and then just one other thing too. The thing about the Watiko virus, it can usurp any of these truths that are actually infused with this wisdom, and pervert it for its own, like you know, these unsavory ends. So that's another you know quality of of uh, you know that's important to understand about Watiko. You know. Yeah, it's like yeah. this little story in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna about the mahout and the elephants. You know that the the master was teaching his students, you know, we're all one, we're all one, everything is one, you know, God is in everything, God is in everything. Then they go out for a walk in the jungle, and uh, the mahout, the elephant uh, guide or handler, comes running through the forest and says, you know, wild elephant, wild elephant, get out of the way, he's gone mad, you know. So uh, they all run away except for this one student of, of the master who stands there, and the elephant comes along and tramples him, and after the elephant's gone, the master comes up and says, you know, why didn't you get out of the way? And he says, well, master, you told me that God was in everything. They were all one, you know, it's all an illusion. And he says, he says, uh, yeah, well, the God in the Mahout told you to get out of the way. <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a great example. Bernard, you're still there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have a follow-up? No. Yeah, just a little. Uh, thanks very much, Paul. I, I totally agree, and that was my point about these so-called higher absolute truths, which are true, obviously, on this higher level. Everything is coming from the one we all want, but a lot of people tend to use that as an excuse to deal with, uh, with it on our level, with its limitations yeah. and everything, and, you know, the danger of, of applying this higher truth in a very superficial, almost distorted way, and, you know, it ties also into spiritual bypassing. Of, yeah, totally. You know, no, I, Bernard, I so appreciate your perspective, really. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, great. Thanks very much, guys. Hi, Bernard. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Nicole. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. It seems that a lot of people who believe that stuff, though, they're like, uh, they're kind of a dog with two bones in a certain sense because they want to use that as an excuse to not do anything, but at the same time, they want to maintain their selfhood. They want to have an existence, and hi, my name is John, and I believe everything is one, but it's, you know, they have to accept at a certain point that there is this, quote-unquote, relative uh, reality, too, that there are different ways of looking at it and different types of existences, and uh, they want to basically be a dog with two bones. They want to have the comfort of everything is one and all is God, and at the same time, they still want to be themselves and they want to eat their Snickers bar. Um, so, you know, right. this is kind of what, what I like to re- refer to as like the faux mystic, uh, the person who just talks the talk but never never recognizes or walks the walk. Right, right. And if, if I could just say one thing, too, it's a thought uh-huh. that keeps on coming up, so I, I feel like I should share it, because I've seen this with a lot of really well-intentioned people involved in, in spiritual practice where they, they, you know, and I just, you know, I think a little while ago I just 
said this really quickly, but I want to go into it more, where they'll be of the opinion, no, I don't want at all like hear about evil or read books on evil or think about it or put my attention on it because by me doing that, I'm beating evil. And and I, I you know and I try to point out to them that well you know yeah it's um, you know one doesn't want to become too fascinated with evil because then you you actually are feeding it but if you're just turning a blind eye you know like an ostrich and not looking at it that's the very thing that 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 feeds evil but there's this other option where you actually can see it you don't close your eyes to it and then being a sovereign being we can choose where we place our attention. So once we see how evil operates, once we see how Watiko operates through the unconscious, we can then choose, oh, okay, I see you. Now I want to invest my psychic energy in creating the world I want to live in. That's different, you know, and it's unfortunate that these spiritual people that I see, you know, by them being in avoidance, it's like they're having an avoidance of being in relationship with a part of themselves. They're unwittingly feeding <laughs> the very thing that they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And there is, there's, of course, the other aspect of it as a as a person who who says those kind of things is actually a bit <laughs> uh, is a bit being facetious or, or or not really telling the truth because um, you know if all is one, then then so is evil. You know, there's evil in the world, and, and denying it exists and trying to hide from it uh, is really kind of like disingenuous, basically, when you say that kind of stuff. Which brings yeah, us no. back. Uh-huh. I mean, a, a Which, study of it is yeah, important. But it brings us back to the point of appreciation for what exists and thankfulness to the fact that it does exist because it teaches us, and as Paul said earlier, when there is this great evil... That means that there is a contrasting element. There is light that is causing this evil to cast such a long shadow. So it it uh, you know it kind of goes together. I think. I mean, if you're not if you're not part of that light that is is causing to be defined that evil, the act of definition and study is 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 actually that light uh, projecting onto it to to show it for what it is. If you're not a part of that. Well, then maybe you might just be a part of it, the shadow, <laughs> you know? Maybe. I'm not saying anything for sure. Yeah, but that comes mm-hmm. back to what Paul is saying about, you know, people who reject the shadow in themselves, uh, and, and it's all out there. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. Right, right, right. And, that, and then whether <laughs> you're talking just individually, they play that out in their own lives or with their partner, or whether we as a species are playing that out in the world. And, you know, it just brings me back to the profundity of, like, when this boundary collapses between the inner and the outer, and you begin to realize that's what's playing out in our psyche, deep down in the deep subconscious of each one of us, is actually getting revealed through what's playing out in the world. You know, that it's actually, Mm -hmm. like, reflecting back that it's in symbolic form. It's just, it's like an outpicturing of what's actually happening inside of us. When you see that, you begin to realize, oh my God, the psyche isn't just inside of my skull, but I'm actually inside of the psyche, you know? And, and that's just like a dream. Because think mm-hmm. about a dream. When you're in a dream, it can appear completely real and convincing and, you know, an other and independent and objective. And then for whatever reason, if you have lucidity and you realize, oh, my God, everything that I'm experiencing here is just, it's my own energy. It's a reflection of my own mind. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And it's that that I'm talking about, that when any, any, of, any one of us has lucidity, but then particularly, you see, it's, it's one thing if I'm in a dream and, I, and if I have lucidity, that's one thing. But then if all of a sudden I meet somebody else in that dream, another dream character, an aspect of myself, and they're also waking up. And then what about if there are 10 of us or 100 of us? or a thousand, and we get together and we contemplate what are we realizing? And what we're realizing is that this universe we're in, we're actually dreaming it up moment by moment. It's a reflection of what I call our sacred power of dreaming. When enough of us plug in together in that way, we discover, oh my God, we can change the dream. That there's nothing objective, independent outside of us. It's all just our own dreaming power. And that's the evolutionary opportunity that's being offered to us. And that's the very thing that's, our, that's, the very thing that's going to save us. You know, if we don't well, realize that. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say, we've got something like seven, seven and a large fraction billion people billion. on the planet. Right. And I would say that a vanishingly small number have this kind of awareness. And um, I think that the dream for those that do not choose or cannot wake up may, uh, you know, may not end well. I, I, I have, I have uh, some videos out where I talk about how, you know, splitting realities. And I think that... Uh, if a concentrated group of individuals can begin to see this, that they can, in a sense, step into another reality, you know, kind of Wheeler's Many Worlds type of thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, But then there's going to be a whole large number of other people who will continue on the same trajectory uh, to, you know, possible extinction because uh, extincting... A large numbers of people happens apparently fairly regularly on our planet. Right, and I, I just want to—I mean, I hear you, Laura, and that's—you um, know, yeah, there are seven billion of us, and and you know, even the Bible, I think it says something like 144,000. It's a symbolic number, and the way I understand that is, you know, yeah, it's not going to be at a given point, you know, at, at least at first, all seven billion. But even if there is a significant critical mass whether you think of the 100th monkey phenomena or one beautiful image that, that I love is like when you have this, this glass of water and you take sugar crystals and you just dissolve one by one the grains of sugar in the water and they just dissolve and dissolve and then it reaches a saturation point and you add one more grain of sugar and all of a sudden this crystal will just spontaneously appear in the water. And that's like you know, um, any one of us having, you know, insight or the realization of the dreamlike nature or recognizing who we are or seeing Watiko or owning our shadow, we might be that grain of sugar in the collective unconscious that precipitates a whole global awakening because we're not separate. It's a non-local field that we all share. Well, let's hope. I'm, I mean, we keep working, we keep working, but uh, I have to say, quite frankly, that it... Uh, uh, it looks pretty grim at the moment. Right, but I, I also point out in my book, I have a section that one of the, the strategies of Watiko is to become overly pessimistic in the same way that another strategy is to become overly optimistic and think God is going to save us. That's to totally be under the spell of Watiko. But if we become you know, identified with pessimism and really convinced of the truth of it, then we're actually going to invoke this reality to confirm our viewpoint. You know, so just well, to be I really careful. I, I don't okay. think I'm doing that because, like, like I said, you know, we keep working, 
Mm, right. Because it's the right the right thing to do. Well, that, you know, it's right. the right thing to do. That touches on a on a point I wanted to kind of bring up about this about SIPA, the spiritually informed political political activist. Oh well, I've never even act, called uh, it SIPA. That's great. Well, so, um, I mean, it's you, the way you're talking about thing about the the situation in terms of we're dreaming this reality and stuff. Um, I can see how a lot of people who just took that out of context would go the whole new age kind of route, which is basically I create my own reality, and if I don't look at anything evil, I can just create a wonderful, beautiful world. And, uh, and in fact, I should not even look at anything bad happening in the world and ignore it all. But obviously that's not what we're saying. But at the same time, you, you said earlier on that um, we can't, uh, kind of fight, we should fight, but uh, against evil in this world and against this Watiko virus type situation, but uh, we can't allow our kind of uh, inner darkness or our, our, our disowned parts of ourselves to, to fuel that um, that fight because then we'll, as Jason was saying earlier on, we'll basically end up engaging in the tactics of the of the evildoers. So it's a very fine kind of line to walk and it also, it almost seems like uh, I mean, you have to do something. You have to stand up for true, uh, true, true. human values and, and the truth in this world, and you have to get angry. I mean, clearly, the stuff that's happening, the evil that people see in the world when they confront it makes them angry, but it shouldn't be a kind of an anger that is fueled by this darkness within yourself. It should be an anger that is more maybe righteous. But at the same time, you have to hold in your mind the idea that it's, Almost like you can't be identified no. with it. You, you have to hold in your mind that it's almost like it is a dream and it's ultimately an illusion, yeah. but you still have to pretend that it's real. Act as if it's real, but understand in the background that it's an illusion and never engage in kind of uh, violence or anti-human uh, actions. Is that where you're coming from, Paul? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that sounds really good in the sense that... Um you know, like with anger, for example, you know, I'm like I've been saying, I'm a Buddhist practitioner, and they'll say, oh, if you get angry, all of all of all of your merit will get burned up, you know, in an instant. And what they're talking about mm. is that if you get possessed by anger, and right. you know, and just act it out unconsciously. But they also have these deities that are these wrathful deities that are forms of enlightenment and whose essence is compassion, and they're mm. trying to symbolically express, yeah, it's perfectly cool. To you know, to express your anger in a way with awareness, where you know it's actually not just like you know you're becoming possessed by something and reacting, you know, and you know out of fear or just reacting in general, mm-hmm. but you know it's actually an expression of your enlightened compassion. That's very very different, you know. Yeah. And, and if I could just go back to one thing, because somebody a little while ago asked a question about like. Um, you know, the thing about, like, addictions and stuff like that. And I just wanted to say, you see, what I'm pointing out in the book with Watiko, it, it's very related to addictions, and it's also related to being in trauma. Like, our species is a species in trauma. We all have PTSD. And I think that's really important to understand. And the thing which is interesting about trauma is that, so, 
Well, the first thing is that it's a sane response to an insane situation. But what happens in trauma is that something will, will overwhelm your sense of self that can't be integrated in the normal way. And so what you do, the way you respond to that is by, by trying to heal the very trauma that you've just suffered, you actually create the very thing that you're actually trying to heal in a feedback loop. And you just, it's the whole compulsion to repeat and, you know, mm-hmm. the trauma. So you're just recreating your trauma moment by moment. And in a sense, that's very, what I just described, that's very much Watiko. And that's very much related to like when we see ourselves acting out an addictive pattern. But here's the, here's the rub, that encoded in that acting out of our addiction or of our trauma, we're potentially trying to discharge something or we're potentially trying to complete an incomplete process. But if we don't have the recognition of that, then we're just going to be endlessly, you know, enacting the addictive feedback loop in a way that's basically killing ourselves. And so it's that same idea that in it's a superposition of states in that acting out of our unconscious, whether it's in trauma or addiction, it's like, you know, this incredible, this disease, this illness, this pathology, but encoded in it, it's like the very medium for our snapping out of the spell is the, is the acting out of it. We have to act it out in order to, to unlock it. And so I think that's a really good way of understanding what I'm trying to say about Watiko, that encoded in the evil is is also this potential. It's the very way that we can help ourselves to wake up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, we have one more question that was sent in. Um, it's a bit of a general question, I suppose. Uh, what does Paul think is the number one most important thing a person who's become aware of this Watiko in themselves and others can do? Wow, thanks for these, like, you know, these easy questions, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and w- what came up in my mind as soon as you said that, so I'll just share that, is to express yourself creatively, you know, because we're all right. dreamers, we're all artists. And like I was saying, Watiko is this daimonic energy and encoded in the daimon, our inner voice, our guiding spirit is the creative spirit. And if we don't express that creativity, you know, consciously, constructively, it turns self-destructive or other destructive. So the point being is that if you really, like, are seeing what I'm pointing at, you know, then in your own way, like, I wrote a book about it. Not that you should write a book about it. You can if you want to. But in your own particular way, we all have gifts, and we all have a particular calling and a voice and, um, you know, to creatively express yourself in a way that's actually going to be helpful for other people. Because what you discover is that if this is a dream and we're all characters in each other's dreams and we're all interdependent and interconnected, if I help you, wow, I'm actually helping myself, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a whole new paradigm of cutting through that self and other, like, dichotomy. And so the point being that if we can express ourselves creatively in a way that's actually helping other people, you know, then we're creating a win-win for everyone. And I would say that that, and that deepens then our lucidity and, and our understanding too. I'm glad you said that because uh, that's something that I tell people all the time because, you know, we, we deal with a, a lot of, you know, we work with the public quite a bit. We have our forum and we, 
are constantly trying to help people to get over basically what you just said, you know, social or societal or global PTSD. And mm-hmm. I tell people over and over again, you know, they'll tell me or they'll tell us or they'll express on our forum stories about their past, their lives. You know, some of them are absolute horror stories. Some people have gone through some of the most atrocious things and have had horrible, horrible things happen to them. And we have an international forum, so of course we have people who have who were victims, like in in Serbia and Kosovo, and uh, you know, in the, the whole breakup of the Balkan states. We have people right now who are members of our forum who are over there in Ukraine, and there's in the cities that are being um, uh, where, where civil war is basically starting. Uh, you know, many things like that. And what I tell people repeatedly is, you know. It's if you suffer and you don't see any meaning in it, because a lot of them, they're, they're so beaten down, they don't see any meaning in anything. And I tell them, why don't you write a blog, create a blog, write your life story. It doesn't have to be with your name on it. It can be anonymous. You can write your life story and you can share what has happened to you. Uh, and And if writing isn't your thing, you know, paint pictures about it or draw pictures about it. Make music about it, you know, do something about it, share it, because there is somebody, there is a, a group of somebodies out there who are going to be, you know, right on your wavelength. They're going to be tuned into what you have to say, what you've experienced. They've experienced it too, and they're going to they're going to get something. They're going to learn something. They're going to uh, it's going to it's going to be healing for them because if you can write about it, then they can write about it too. And if everybody starts, you know, doing some of these writing exercises and talking about the things that have been happening to them, then what happens is is the light gets shown on the virus because they're mm-hmm. exposing it. And if everybody would start in their own individual way, <clears throat> creatively uh, exposing what has happened to them or exposing, you know, what's what's going on in the world wherever they are, then everybody would know what's going on and and it's you know it's just but they're some of them are so beaten down it's just it's yeah just no really i sad. i i appreciate that laura like what you're saying i mean i just want to bring my own self in you know so i you know i don't have any family my family you know my father was a like a genuine psychopath i was in the role of pointing it out and i got marginalized and demonized and became the identified patient and then, you know, my mother died thinking I was, you know, mentally ill, and all the other relatives have, have excommunicated me. And so it's been really painful for me. It, yeah. you know, people who haven't been through that can't even imagine what, it, you know, in indigenous cultures, it's the worst form of punishment to be, you know, banished or ostracized or excommunicated by your tribe. And that's what's happened to me. And, and I'm not going to go into the story, but what the point is, is that what you were saying, more and more I've been thinking about, well, I need to write something about what's played out for me, not in an indulgent way or not even so much the personal stuff, but just because I know, I intuitively know that there's like an underlying pattern that played out in my process with my family that could really be helpful for other people to hear because I bet so many other people a similar thing has played out in their own way and to have somebody express like the deeper archetypal like you know process of it could be really really helpful for them to then get in touch with their voice sure yeah and I think so that's why I'm, I'm saying that I, I wholeheartedly agree with creativity being the whole solution to this one way or another and 
you know, if if the only thing you can do is, and sometimes this is true, we have our our news website, and sometimes people are so wounded they can't get to the point where they can write about anything, but it makes them feel better to be able to find and and collect and post and comment on articles on our website because they feel like they're they're doing something, you know, they're collecting information, they're exposing the you know exposing the the lies for what they are. And we, you know, we try to find different ways that people can help uh, if they don't have, you know, specific artistic abilities. But ultimately, I want to see everybody begin to express their 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 art their artist artistic uh, talents. Their, yeah, well, the thing, you know, their, what you're saying, it's so important, Laura, because I mean, in the book, I even talk about the artist is going to be the figure that heals the world. And it totally has to do with what we're talking about. And you're also pointing out the profound importance of being in community. Because part of being in the collective psychosis like we're in with the Watiko virus being pervading, you know, the world like it is, is that so many people feel isolated and fragmented and just, you know, not connected with other people. And that itself is an outside reflection of what's happened in their mind, of their own inner fragmentation. So the idea, even in Buddhism, they'll talk about one of the the main supports of enlightenment is the Sangha, is the community of fellow awakening beings. And so it's profoundly important to, like, connect with other beings who speak the language and we can all, like, you know, in a sense, hold up a mirror for each other to reflect back our Buddha nature, our, like, you know, who we really are, Instead of projecting the shadow, we can dream each other up in a high way, in a good, in a true way, you know, because there is a there is an energetic something that happens when we hang out with each other that can either be we can project the shadow and keep each other down and just, you know, enact our abuse and play out our unconscious in a way that's not helpful, or we can actually hold each other in really high regard you know, and connect with each other and create a container between us in a way where we can all help each other to deepen our lucidity and to even deepen our awakening. And that's what we've been really, really kind of pushing for in, in the last couple of years is, is people forming soul communities, what you just talked about, uh, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. awaken, awakening people. Because as you just said, you know, you're, you're, you've lost your, your birth community, so to say. Your, yeah, your birth totally. family, your tribe, and so many other people have too. Because I mean, by the by the rules of genetic recombination, you know, we get born into families. Sometimes we take the the genetics that we can get in order to come in and do our job, and we may find ourselves completely um, <clears throat> lost with with our birth family. But then we find fellow awakening beings, and we can form families with them. We can form communities with them. We can form tribes with them. People need their right. tribes. They need. They they need to totally. get back to this, and they need to uh, you know interact with each other constantly on a daily level, and and it's just uh, I, I see that as kind of the path to the future. And if you uh, if you think about that though, you know that uh, uh, society and 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 culture, Western culture, has for a very long time been suspiciously working against the idea of community and, and family. Um, everything's about, you know, moving out on your own and, you know, everybody lives separately and you've got your whole little island thing going on, which yeah. uh, which is sort of really droned in from every yeah. angle. The Watiko virus. Oh, the Watiko virus. Yeah, because yeah, totally. to be alone, divide and conquer. And uh, the Western civilization, for sure, I mean, not knowing much about many other civilizations, I can't really comment there. 
but has definitely <clears throat> had been divided and, and conquered in a certain sense. Yeah, you know, tribal societies are just, I mean, where, where uh, tribes or communities are very close, where they help each other, where, you know, children are, are raised together and where everybody knows each other. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, it's just a, and extended families, you know, I have this big extended family and we all live together and uh, we may not all be genetically related, but we're related by soul, you know, so it's... Uh, right, Totally. Yeah, yeah, that idea, like, that there's a soul family, and, um, you know, um, the the way I understand that is that, because people who talk about that, they'll say that the underlying sort of theme of that is is to help each other to wake up, like, um, to in a way to, um, what is it called, reciprocal individuation, that they have a contract with each other over these lifetimes to connect, so that they can help each other to remember. And that's really interesting to me, the fact that we, you know, sort of atemporally um, as individuals, you know, have this contract with, with other, other whatever people, parts of ourselves, to connect when the time is right and to help each other to remember to remember. You know, that's really interesting. You see, because I'm, I'm just interested in that if this is a dream, how can we you know, intervene in the dream, how can we go about this dream in a way that can help ourselves to wake up? And we can all, like, we can connect with each other in a way where we can deepen our lucidity. And that's one of the things I do. I have all these circles out here where I am of people who are awakening to the dreamlike nature. And every week we meet, you know, there's like three or four of them a week. And we don't have any agenda except just to, you know, be in the moment and to connect with each other but with the awareness that we're having a mass shared dream. And when you just follow that, you discover creative ways of, oh, we can deepen our lucidity by just following whatever is unfolding with awareness. You know, and well, so that that's a really... Back, uh-huh. That comes back to the creativity thing, because if you're, if you're putting your story out there, if you're, doing, if you're getting engaged in some kind of a community activity uh, to help other people wake up, and you know you're going to find your soul family because they're going you're going to be sending out a signal if you're not doing anything you're not sending out a signal if you're not writing or painting or interacting in some way and and you know with all of the the bad things about it the internet still is you know a glorious opportunity for people across the planet you know who might otherwise never have been able to connect with one another to connect, I mean, look, look, look at look at my husband. If there had not been the internet, I would not have met my husband. Mm. You know, but you, did, you didn't find him on one of those websites, though. Well, no, no I was doing my work. I was publishing right. my material. He read my material. He was interested. He contacted me. That's how it should happen. You should be doing your mission. You should be doing what yeah. you love. You should be being creative, and then. Somebody else who is also at the same level or somebody who is in, interested in the same things will respond, reciprocate, you know, come they you'll connect. Well, I do have one thing to say, uh, something that I find is that a lot of people, they kind of allow an exterior definition of creativity. If they can't paint and they can't write or they can't compose music, all of a sudden they think, well, I can't do anything creative. And uh, I, I think that, 
people should do whatever it is that they feel is creative. I mean, anything that you do can be creative. You could build stuff. You can uh, be a cook. You can do all these other things. I mean, there, there are a myriad of, uh, of manifestations of creativity that a person can go to. So, I mean, if a person doesn't feel that they can write, compose music or paint, it doesn't mean that there isn't something else they can do creatively. Yeah, that, I think that's uh, a really pottery, important point. Yeah. Um, or just even, even, even so much, even just like cleaning the house or washing the dishes can be done creatively. Anything can be a creative act. That's the point. Exactly. Absolutely. Well, we're getting close to the yeah. end here. Well, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to keep uh, Paul too long. Cause I know he's Paul got, has to go and he's meet. got an appointment. And, uh, he has to meet some members of his tribe. Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, but it's been great, Paul. Uh, it's been an excellent discussion. I think we really got to the heart of a lot of different matters. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just really appreciate it. And just know, too, uh, you know, because when you had announced before, like, uh, my site, it, it, it was the wrong website that you said. Uh-oh. Oh, that's okay. So just it's um, awakenindthedream.com, A-W-A-K-E-N, indthedream.com. And, you know, you'll see my book, but also there's a ton of articles on the site, and they're all for free, because this mm-hmm. information, I just, want to, I, just want pe- I just want to get it out. And, um, yeah, and I just really appreciate Absolutely. this. Like, as we were talking, I was realizing, wow, this is the type of discussion I just love, you know, so I really want to thank yeah. you guys. Yeah, us too. Well, well, well we're going to get it up on various different uh, websites and stuff, and beyond Blog Talk Radio, and we'll put it on YouTube, and we'll put it on our own site, thought.net, and I'll send you some links so you can share them. Oh, that's beautiful. Really, really appreciate that. Yeah, we're going to get it up there, and we're going to keep on yeah, trucking, yeah. no matter what. Yeah, and I just want to say to you, you Laura, I'm a big fan of you. I, I studied when I wrote my book. I mean, I, re- I read, you know, a lot of your, the series, the, you know, the whole, like, whatever, the secret secret history of the world, and then the, the, and the, wave, the, the series. wave series. You know, particularly what I really appreciated that you're one of the few people who writes about evil in a way that's really, really intelligent. And so I've just been a fan of yours, and I just when I realized it was you on on the show here, I was like, oh my god, I feel really honored. So just, just oh, wanted you to know that. Don't be silly now. <laughs> <laughs> We're just happy to have you on. And if you haven't read my new book, you know, Comets in the Horns of Moses, it's kind of like Volume Two of Secret History of the World. I think you'll like it, and I think it's a oh lot more god. entertaining. Yeah, I would love. Lot... I would love to see it. Yeah. So yeah. send you a copy. We'll, we'll get you a copy. Okay, no, great. I'll just, yeah, that'll be great. I'll send you, like, my, on an email my address or something. But, yeah, I just, I okay. really admire your work. It's been helpful for me. Excellent. Thank you so much, and I we admire like your book, actually. Yeah, yeah. you're really doing great work yourself. Yeah, yeah I want to say, if you guys don't have a book, I'm happy to send you a book. We'll, we'll, we'll talk afterwards, whatever. I think we but, have yeah. Yeah. copies. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I think we have okay, a copy. Great. But, listeners, the book's called Dispelling Wattigo. Wattigo. Wattigo, Breaking the Curse of Evil. Yeah, and highly recommended. And, yeah. Paul sent me a copy when the first incarnation was done, and I really, really liked it. And I wrote him a letter, and I said, "I really, really like it." <laughs> so, well, okay. thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> All right, Paul. Thank okay, you. Okay, guys. So, hey, Good thank night. you so much. Okay, okay. take care. Bye bye. Take it easy. Okay. All right, folks. I think that's it for this week. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show. Do we have any any special announcements? No. Nobody's got any special announcement. Oh, yeah. Jason has a special announcement. I have a special announcement. announcement. Go to Amazon.com and get Secret History in the Horns of Moses. Comments in the the Horns of Moses. And political policy. And all of our other books. I think the title would be like, you know, three or four words, you know? Yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway, I have a question. Yes. Is next week's show confirmed? Not yet, but Not uh, yet. it will be soon. Okay. So, uh, yeah, until then, thanks to our callers and thanks to our listeners and our chatters and to everybody here. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.